Turn to John 17. In a moment, begin reading in verse 17, maybe a little before that for context. But just to catch you up, if you haven't been here, this is the, the third in what will be a, a four-part series going through this one chapter. This chapter, John 17, is sometimes called the, the high priestly prayer. It is a whole chapter devoted to this prayer of Christ. This prayer of Christ on the very night before he died, after several chapters, from chapters 13 to 16, teaching, investing, pouring in his disciples one last time, now he, he prays. And he, and he prays for them, and he prays for you. He says in this prayer in verse 20 that he's not just praying for them, but for all who will believe in him through their words. And so if that is you, if you have believed in Christ, he was praying for, for you. So we've been unfolding. What is he praying for? There's four specific requests. We've hit the first two. First one of which was he prays, Father, glorify your son. He prays for, for his own glory. And we saw that in the context of how appropriate it is in those first five verses. And then he pivots to praying for us, his disciples and us. And he prays, Father, keep them. That's the second key word. Glorify and then keep. He says, they're in this world. I am coming out of this world, but I am leaving them in this world. And this world will be a dangerous place. It will be an alluring place. It will draw them in. Pray, keep them in the midst of it. But that's where we left off. And it can feel like kind of a defensive posture, like, oh, this world's pretty scary. We just have to get through. And yet, now this third prayer addresses the mission that we're on now. Not merely keep them, like preserve them, hold them back. Just, you just got to get through these years. But Father, sanctify them, meaning set them apart, so that they can be sent into this world. And so that's what he prays for you, as we'll see here, that not only would the Father keep you, preserve you, but that he would sanctify you, set you apart, and send you into the world. Let's read this now. I'll start reading in verse 13, although we'll give our attention this morning to verses 17 to 19. John 17, picking up in verse 13. It says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So this is the third prayer, the third part of this. Sanctify them. He said glorify, glorify your son. Keep, keep them. And now he prays sanctify, sanctify. We're left behind in this world, and he's warned about the world in the context of the prayer that we saw last week. How are we to avoid pulled in by the world, uh, being affected by the world, being conformed to the world, those things that we saw last week, we need to be set apart. We need to be sanctified. 
Sanctified just literally means that, to, to set apart for special use. To set apart for special use. It, it's the verb of the same word that's translated holy. So the word holy and the word sanctify, if we look at the Greek behind, it's a similar word. It's just one's a verb and one's a noun. Uh, so, you know, like, like today, you, you've seen instances of this where somebody takes a, a noun and they turn it into a verb. Like, you don't give somebody a car, you gift them a car. You might hear somebody say that. Or it used to be that you would make friends, you become friends with somebody, now you, you friend someone, right? It's a noun that has become a verb. In the same way, it's like he's praying, Father, holy them. Make them holy. Sanctify literally means that. Make them holy. We tend to think of holy in ethical terms, you know, free from sin, separate from sin. And that's an that's a aspect of it, but it's not the entirety of it. Holy just simply means to be set apart and separate. To, as God is described as holy, holy, holy. Three times in, in Isaiah and in Revelation chapter 4, gives us threefold holy, holy, holy. It means not merely that God is sinless, although of course that's true, but that he is utterly separate from his creation. He is transcendent. He is distinct. And so in Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 2, it says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am I'm holy. He declares this about himself, that he is holy, he is distinct, he is set apart. And notice he says to the people, you shall be holy. And not just here, this is one verse out of Leviticus, there's dozens of others. Because it runs through Leviticus, where it says you shall be a holy people. And, and, and sometimes in maybe ways that seem obscure to us. Maybe you've had the experience of reading through Leviticus and seeing moral commands. are like, okay, it makes sense, they shouldn't. You know, take part in this activity. But then it'll say, and, and don't eat these things. And, and don't dress like this. And don't engage in this. It's because he's setting the people apart. He's saying, you are a set-apart people because I am set apart. I am holy. So he says, you be holy. Items in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, were often described as holy. Uh, a lampstand, a table, something like that, because they were set apart. You couldn't just take the lampstand and go like, hey, I'm going to light my party with this lampstand because it's nice and big. No, it was set apart. It was holy for a special use. You might have some things in your home that are set apart. Maybe there are certain dishes that only come out at the holidays. Maybe they are guest towels in the guest bathroom. And if you lay your grubby hands on those towels, your mom is going to be all over you because they're not for you, right? They are set apart for special use. That's this idea of sanctify. Set them apart. It, it does, of course, mean set apart from sin, but it's so, so much more than that. It is in contrast to being worldly. That came up last week. Comes up throughout the New Testament. Warns about being distinct from the world. We see it earlier in John 15. Remember, this is the same night in which he's praying in John 17. And he tells his disciples here, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. The word sanctify is nowhere in here, but is, the concept is certainly embedded there. It says you are not of the world, meaning you are separate from the world. I chose you out of the world. 
So because of that, you will have opposition from the world, but you are set apart. You are set apart. And so because of that, we are not to love the world. The verse we saw last week, 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And we are not of the world. We are set apart from the world. We are to be distinct from the world, so we are not to love these things. But it can be so easy to be pulled in to these things. So, so easy to, to live as if we are just of the world in a way that's indistinguishable from the world around us. We, we see warnings of that even in the narratives uh, in, in the storyline of the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 4.10, we learn about this man, Demas, who had been a, a companion of Paul, a co-laborer, but he says, having loved this present world has deserted me. Demas, out of love for the world, he, he, he went back to the world. He deserted Paul. There's a warning for us there. It's no wonder that one author puts it this way. He says, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. It's not persecution, although that may come, and that comes in different facets, but, but we're much more likely to just be pulled in to the world, seduced by it. So the language of Romans 12, of being conformed to the world, of James 1, of being stained by the world, comes into play here. It's what we sometimes call worldliness. We sometimes define worldliness, though, merely in external terms. Like somebody who's worldly, if they listen to the wrong music and they dress the wrong way and they act like their friends and they use the wrong language, and that can all be expressions of it, but we can also be polished up in all those ways and still have a heart that wants sin and is secretly cherishing it. That's why Jesus would speak of the religious leaders of his day as, as whitewashed tombs. It's like, it's like saying you're like a casket that is beautiful and shiny on the outside but inwardly is dead. They looked great on the outside, but inwardly not. And that can be us as well. We can polish the outside, but inwardly have a heart that is not for the Lord. The, the solution then is not to just clean things up, but to be sanctified, to, to be increasingly set apart from the inside out. Not merely protected, but changed. Um, it's a good reminder for parents to pray this, um, particularly parents that are, that are homeschooling. Was, was, a, was something we pursued for many years. It can be a great way to seek to educate your kids and often want to kind of shelter and protect them and shape them. And, and we can become convinced that if I just do that, if I protect them from the wrong influences, then they will turn out great. And yet the reality is they still have a heart that needs to be sanctified. And so you can protect them, and it's often good, but also pray, God, you must do a work in the heart. I pray that you would. So Jesus here prays, Father sanctify them. And then he describes the method of this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Look at verse 17 again. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is his main instrument that he will use by his spirit to increasingly set us apart. Because that is not merely, again, just a cutting off bad influences, stuff like that, but it's a change of thinking. 
It's conforming to the truth. So D.A. Carson says, and I think accurately, in practical terms, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him, without learning to live in conformity with the word that he has graciously given. This sanctification requires us to be conformed to the truth, and God's word is truth, and he uses his word to then shape us and sanctify us in that way. So that we read in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, growing in this sanctification, growing and increasingly set apart. It's his word like food for a baby that does that. My concern is that many Christians go around spiritually malnourished. We know what it is to see pictures on, maybe on the news of like a drought plagued region in the world where everybody looks emaciated. They're, they're surviving, but just barely, and you know they don't get enough nutrition. And, and I think too many Christians exist in that type of state spiritually. They're getting just enough nutrition to stay alive. They're coming to church. They're hearing the word. But they're not eating except for once a week. And, and so my encouragement for you is, Jesus is praying to the Father, sanctify them. And he's saying, use your word to do this. Are you cutting that yourself off from this very thing that he wants to use to sanctify you? That's not to say if to be a good Christian you have to just read the Bible every day and just check that box. But it's to say that is nourishment for your soul. And if you feel like you're starving, you feel like you're, you're just barely getting by, it's a question to ask. Are you getting in the word so that you can be fed. God certainly uses other things to sanctify us. He uses people. It's a great reminder of this in Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that no one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Be hardened by sin. We need each other to encourage us. Living in isolation makes that hard. And so building a network of relationships Maybe you're a new college student, and maybe that means jumping into crossroads. Um, uh, maybe you're relatively new, like at UBC or in the community, maybe jumping into a small group. We've got seven, I think, small groups that are listed in the bulletin that are starting up. Different nights of the week, different topics. Uh, love to have you guys jump into a group, because that's one thing that God uses to sanctify you. As you get into the Word together, and these relationships God uses to sanctify But this is really critical to understanding John 17. He doesn't merely pray, sanctify them, set them apart, and then stop there. Because it could still seem kind of defensive, right? Like the world's dangerous, so Father, keep them, sanctify them, like growing in holiness internally. But he gives a purpose for it. He says, do this because I am sending them into the world. And so that would be the purpose, to send them into the world. Sanctify because I am sending them. Uh, look, look at verse 18 again. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. It's not this defensive posture, how the world's so scary and dangerous, I just got to pull back from it. It can be like a bunker mentality of like, it's a scary place, I just got to isolate myself so I'm not around non-Christians, I'm not around this dangerous stuff, I'm just going to pull back. But that's not what he's praying. He says, set them apart 
because I am sending them. Just as you sent me, I am sending them. So we're not to be in a bunker. We're not to mirror the world either. We're not to just, if somebody looks at us, they just see themselves. They just see all the same values, the same priorities. That would be mirroring the world. No, we're sent into the world. Which makes sense then why he says sanctify them. Set them apart for a special purpose. And the special purpose is to be sent. To be sent. And notice that he compares it to his own having been sent. He says, as you sent me... I also have sent them. He came for a particular purpose. He indicates at many places. John 12, for example, 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He was sent to save. And, and even sometimes uses the language of sanctification right along with being sent. This is in John 10, 36. He's in the midst of this heated conflict with some people that were enraged at him because he was claiming to be one with the Father, affirming his Trinitarian nature with the Father and the Son. And so you see that reflected in the second part of this, but notice what he says first. He says, but do you say of him, talking about himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Notice there that those same two words, sanctify and sent, that we see in John 17 come up again. He says, Father, you sanctified me and you sent me. You set me apart for this special purpose. You sent me. And now, Father, sanctify them and send them. Send them into the world. Not this defensive posture where we're just scared of everything, but engaging the world. God has, God has placed you where you are. Maybe there was a maybe you ended up at, at ISU because, well, they gave you more scholarship money, or well, they just were the only ones that accepted you, or whatever it was. And so you're there. There's circumstances that brought you there, but if you're a believer, we can sit back and say, God sent you to ISU. God sent you to Century High School. God sent you to uh, the site. If you work out at the INL, God sent you there. God sent you to Portneuf Medical Center. Wherever you might be, God has, has sent you there. And you can accomplish things there that I, that I could not. Uh, I'll tell you guys, one of the downsides to being a pastor is in conversation with somebody, meet somebody for the first time, what's one of the common questions everybody asks? Hey, what do you do for a living? And and I tell them I'm a pastor, and it's like you can just see the terror come over their eyes. Because <laughs> they don't know what to say next, right? You tell somebody you're a teacher. Oh, what do you teach? You know, you're a nurse. Oh, what, what do you do at the hospital? I'm a pastor. <laughs> There's a barrier that you guys don't have. There's a barrier that you don't have. And so God has sent you places that I, that Tom, that Brad could not go as effectively. Do you, do you view it that way, as being sent, as being sent? Jesus says, sanctify them, send them. In fact, he says, I am sending them. And, and notice he compares it to his own having been sent. We already mentioned that. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. Last thing he says in this is he compares his own having been sent to sending us, and he describes what it costs to sanctify us, and this cost is the cross. Look at verse 19. Prayer again here, sanctify them. Sanctify them because I'm sending them. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. For our, for our sakes he set himself apart for this 
purpose of coming and coming to die. It running throughout John 17 is this anticipation of the cross. He says, I'm about to go to you. Glorify me. I, I'm, I'm setting myself apart. It's the cross of Christ that is alluded to throughout here. It's for this purpose in which he came. We see in John 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. This hour is referring to this, this weight of the cross that he is anticipating that is coming. He says, for this purpose I came. How, I, I can't avoid this. This is why I came. We can maybe summarize Jesus' mission and then our mission since they're contrasted here and compared this way. Jesus' mission, this is an oversimplification, I know, but it seems to be what he's, the language he's using in John 17, to leave this world via the cross, saving those who believe in him. He says over and over again, I'm coming to you, I am leaving this world, but they're remaining. And again, it's an oversimplification, but that's the basic idea. He is, he's going to bear the sins of the world on himself on the cross by completing his earthly mission, going back to the Father. But for us, we're remaining. And so our mission is to remain in this world to tell people about the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Is there more that we're doing? Of course there's more. But this is a key part of it. He says, you sent me, now I'm sending them. They're remaining in this world. Father, keep them, sanctify them, because I am sending them into this world. There's a parallel between our missions, but of course a difference. He was bearing the sins of the world, and we just point people to that. We point people to Jesus. Well, how do we apply this? I'm going to give you three things, three things to think about. The first is to just ask yourself this question. Is your default posture, meaning kind of the way you tend to react to the world, is it isolation, assimilation, or mission? Meaning, do you tend to, out of concern for the world and the mess that you see it in and not wanting to be influenced negatively, do you, do you just pull back in a way that keeps you from some things but also isolates you from people that need to hear about Christ? Do you, do you lean towards isolation? Or do you lean towards assimilation? Wanting to be with people but maybe kind of naively being pulled into things so that you just are assimilated, you just become just like everybody else so that there's no distinction? Or do you approach it from a perspective of mission? God has saved you. God has sent you. And so you're looking to invest, engage, explain, invite. You're looking to invest in people who don't know Christ Engage with them on spiritual things. Try to explain the gospel to them as you have opportunities and invite them to explore things further. That would be a perspective of mission. Are you sent to ISU? Are you sent to Pokey High? Are you sent to your neighborhood? Are you sent to your homeschool, co-op, whatever these facets of life might be? God sent you there. So, what's your default posture? Second, be sanctified by the truth. If this is the prayer of Jesus, he says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so he says, Lord, Father, use this to sanctify them, to set them apart from sin 
to greater knowledge of the truth, from lies to the truth. Lord, would you, Father, would you do that? He prays for the Father to do this. And are you cutting yourself off from this means that he wants to use to so sanctify us? Are you being sanctified by the truth? Are you looking for ways to read the word, to hear the word taught, to grow in your knowledge of it? Carving out perhaps a few minutes a day even to begin to just read. This fall we'll be doing a preaching series through the book of the books of first and second Samuel. It's a longer section in the Old Testament. And what I'm going to encourage you to do, and you'll hear more about this in a couple weeks, is read through five chapters a week on your own. And then on Sunday, I'll preach from something out of those five chapters. There'll be a way for you to just be reading the word, getting in the word on your own, and then hearing some of it taught. So if this is a weakness for you, I encourage you, jump into that. It'll be a couple weeks. We'll talk about more, more about it when we finish John 17. It'll be a way for you to get in the Word. And then the third thing I want to point out, maybe another question. Did Jesus pray for you? Did, did He pray this for you? We've called this series, When Jesus Prayed for You, because He says, I'm praying not just for my disciples, but for all who believe through their words. But is that you? Or have you not yet believed? Believe is the, the key word in John's gospel. Again, it comes up in this prayer in John 17, 20. I don't pray for these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. But that belief is a loaded term in John's gospel. It's not just, yeah, I, I kind of think that's true. But, but it has no impact on your life. It is a full trusting, a sufficient trusting in, in Christ alone. It's what he calls his people to do, and he contrasts over and over again that with a lack of belief. Just to look at one section in John uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, referring to an incident in the Old Testament, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So this response of belief this eternal life. And then the famous words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's the contrast. Not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Notice the language of sending again. But that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To believe in Christ is to say, God, I agree that I have a problem. And my problem is sin. And it's my sin against a perfect God. And what I deserve is judgment. And, and, and apart from you, that is, that is all I will justly get. That is my problem. God has a solution. That solution is Christ, who, who came. He lived the life you couldn't live, fully God and fully man, so that his death paid for your sin. This great problem was solved by Christ. But it's not just a fact that happened. It's a fact that has to be responded to as we believe. And that belief is a loaded belief that says, I want to turn from this sin. I'm going to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Will you forgive me? Friends, if you've done that, he's, he's praying all this for you. If, if not, that is just a joyful beginning that awaits you to come. Let's pray.